Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Andrew, for those who uh, don't know me, and uh, we, I'll be helping us look through this passage from uh, Micah chapter 5. We've been looking at the Old Testament uh, prophet of Micah for the last four weeks now, and um, how are you finding it? Uh, sobering, yeah, okay. Uh, I've, I've had a few chats with people. Um, we, we've had some great sermons and some really encouraging Bible studies in our growth groups. And uh, let me encourage you to join one of those. It's a, a great way of uh, looking at God's word uh, together. Um, but generally the comments I've heard of people after church, uh, both here after this service and also to the evening service I've been to a couple of times recently, have been that Mike is hard work. Um, it's difficult to understand what he's talking about and, and when and, and how does this fit with, with the things that we know and, and for us as Christians today. How does it all come together? And, and certainly reading the Old Testament is, uh, is far more work than reading the New Testament, isn't it? Uh, it would be easy for us to say that we should just stick with the New Testament because it speaks to us in our situation uh, as Christians. So... But not only is that against what the Bible says we should do, it would also stop us from properly understanding the New Testament because so much of it is actually grounded in the Old Testament. Uh, and so Jesus himself said that the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, uh, bears witness about him in John 5. Or when he appears to the disciples after his resurrection, Jesus uses the Old Testament. He opens their eyes to the Scriptures to help them to understand what has happened in Luke 24. Or Paul writes to Timothy as a young minister in a church that, that all Scripture, that is the Old Testament, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So today I want us to look uh, not just at the message of Micah, but also how we get to that message. Uh, how do we understand what God is saying? It's going to be a little bit more raw than what I'd usually present, uh, a little bit like this picture. So instead of just giving you a nice finished picture with all the gloss, I want you to see the sketches and the rough drafts, the workings out that are used to get to this finished product. Uh, and hopefully that won't take me too long to do and still cover the passage. Now, since this is actually God's word, uh, let's ask for his help to help us to understand it. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have indeed been revealing yourself to your people from the beginning of creation. And we thank you for the record of how you have been at work in the world that we have in the whole of your word, the Bible. Both how you prepared the way for Jesus in the Old Testament and how you fulfilled those plans in Jesus in the New Testament. Help us today as we look to your word, help us to get a better understanding of what it means to be one of your people here and now, to live with Jesus as our promised King so that we may indeed live to please you. Amen. Well, how do we read the Old Testament? Well, in actual fact, it's not that much different to how we read the New Testament. When we read the New Testament, we realise that it was written in a different time and in a different history to us. 
uh, we realise that uh, there are different cultures at play. And so we understand that when we read what it says to the original hearers, we then need to pick those principles up and carry them across the historical and cultural gap so that we can apply them to us today. So, for example, when the New Testament speaks uh, about slaves and masters, we don't have slaves and masters today, but that's okay. We understand that the principle of how you should work applies today in our context of bosses and employees. And there's a whole range of things that are like that, where we carry it across uh, that different, that historical divide. The problem, though, that we come to when we go, move further back into the Old Testament is that it's not just a historical and cultural gap that we need to cross, but there's also a big theological gap. Not that God has changed, but that we are looking at a different period in the story of how God is working in the world. Now, we don't have this problem with the New Testament because we're in the same theological period now as when the, old, as when the New Testament was written. It's after Jesus' return to heaven and while we wait for him to come back. But as we move further and further back into the Old Testament, we find that there are actually a whole range of stages in God's story. And if we're going to understand a part of the Old Testament, then we need to understand what part of the story it's coming from. And so the first step that we need to make when we come to an Old Testament passage is to understand the passage in its day, in its theological and historical context, so that we can properly understand what it meant to the people that it was originally written to. Now, it takes a bit of work when it's in a different context. We actually need to see what is it saying then, before jumping in and trying to take it straight to us. Secondly, we need to bring that meaning across the theological gap by seeing how it's been fulfilled and changed in Jesus, who is the climax and culmination of all of God's story and God's plan, and see how he changes it, how he fulfills it, how he modifies it. And only then can we thirdly bring it across the historical and cultural gap and apply it to us today. Now, if you want a good book to help you understand more about uh, these stages in God's story, then the Australian uh, Graham Goldsworthy's book, uh, Gospel and Kingdom, is well worth reading. Uh, it's only available now in a trilogy of his works, Gospel and Kingdom, Gospel and Wisdom, and Gospel and Revelation. Um, the other two are okay, uh, certainly worth reading, uh, but I reckon Gospel and Kingdom is brilliant and is a definite read. Another book that I understand is based on uh, Gospel and Kingdom, and, uh, but does the same thing a bit more simply, is Vaughan Roberts' book, uh, God's Big Picture. Uh, and friends, they are essential reading for us if you really want to understand how to look at the Old Testament. If you haven't read one of those, get hold of it and read it. Uh, go through the workings in them. They've got questions that uh, head you back and examples. and um, Use those. Use it for your quiet time for a while. Uh, be well worth understanding how to look at God's word uh, in the way that uh, uh, is really just telling us how to read properly. So both of them present God's story to us in terms of God's kingdom, uh, which involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. 
Um, this is taken straight out of uh, Graeme Goldsworthy's book. Um, and I understand that Vaughan Roberts has the same sort of thing, and he adds God's blessing uh, into the picture as well, which is a helpful addition. So when we look at Micah, we know, to get the theological context of the book, we know from the first verse that he fits into the, cha- into the stage where it's changing from, is- from Israel being God's people to before the exile when God's people are taken away from the land of Israel. It's there on that diagram. And uh, so in this time, we can see that God has promised that a king from the line of David will always sit on the throne. But those kings have gone from bad to worse. They're about to face God's judgment by being defeated by foreign enemies. And so in terms of God's place, God's people place and rule, we see that God's people are really at this stage just a remnant looking for a better king. God's place is still Jerusalem, but they're starting to recognise that it's about to be lost and they're beginning to look for what will happen afterwards to a restored Jerusalem. And God's rule is through the curse provisions now of the Sinai Covenant, which said what would happen if the people disobeyed, but they're also looking forward to how God's promises and plans will be renewed and blessing will come again. That's the theological context. The historical context, particularly of chapter 5, is... What have I got up there? Oh, we've gone too far. Okay, the theological context... uh, The historical context is around... We're around the time 701 BC. Assyria is the world power. They've already wiped out the northern tribes of Israel with their capital in Samaria back in 722 BC. Anybody like me have difficulties where the numbers get bigger but you're going earlier? It's already happened. Uh, And the southern tribes of, of Judah with their capital in Jerusalem have been paying tribute to Assyria. They didn't get off scot free. Assyria came down from the north, took over the north, and they made Judah in the south pay. A peace price, basically, to keep them off their back. Now, when we get to, uh, and so um, uh, in 701 BC, about this time, uh, by this stage, King Hezekiah is the king on the throne. And unlike all the kings since Solomon before him, he is finally a good king who actually does what uh, God says. He serves God. He tries to wipe out false religion. And we read about him in 2 Kings chapters 18 to 20. He makes an allegiance with Egypt and stops paying tribute to Assyria. That goes down well. Uh, Assyria respond by invading Judah. They defeat the fortified cities in the northern outskirts of Judah and they approach Jerusalem. King Hezekiah pleads with God that as they, the Assyrians are insulting God's name and saying, he cannot save you. What is this king telling you trust in God? We will defeat your God like we've defeated all the other gods. And so Hezekiah prays to God and God answers him. In 2 Kings 19.35, we, hear, we uh, get the record. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 
185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Praise be to God. It's that period of history that Micah is writing into, just before these events as he looks forward to them. One other context that we need to look at is the literary context, the type of writing it is. Now, Micah is not a history book. It's not even a continuous sermon. And I think this is probably where we get a little bit unstuck. It's actually a series of oracles. Not even one chapter doesn't fit as one whole. In this chapter, we've got three separate oracles. Little short messages put together in a thematic sort of way. Unfortunately, NIV sort of obscures the three by putting a heading right in the middle of the first one, uh, which actually goes from verses 1 to 6. And then we've got another one from 7 to 9, and then the final one from verses 10 to 15. And because they're separate oracles, uh, they're going to have slightly different messages, so we need to look at them separately, uh, which is what we're going to do. So, looking firstly at uh, verses 1 to 6, Uh, and uh, looking at what it says in its day, because that's our first step, remember, to understanding what it means for us now is to see what it meant for the people in its day. So verse 1, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Well, clear warning here, isn't it, to the people? Things are not going to go well. They are going to be besieged. Their enemies are going to come against them. They're going to strike their ruler on the cheek with a rod. That is, they're going to have some victory, some defeat of of the uh, the leader. But it's it's not that he's quite going to be killed. He's going to be disciplined, really, is the way that it's presented. But as we saw last week, there is hope beyond judgment. God's ruler won't continue to be pushed around by foreign kings. God is going to raise up a new ruler. He's going to back, he's going back to the beginning of the kingship, back to David's hometown of Bethlehem in verse 2. And so we read, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. You see, they will be abandoned by God. They will be defeated, but only for a time. They will face great pain like a pregnant woman giving birth, but God will bring them through the labour pains to the birth of a new beginning, to a great hope when all Israel will return and be together. And it's going to happen as this king comes and leads. And this ruler will be one who will shepherd God's flock and care for them, in verse 4. He will act in God's strength and power. He will bring peace and Assyria will be defeated, in verses 5 to 6. Now, in Micah's day, this could possibly be taken to be referring to King Hezekiah. 
He had turned back to God to follow him like David did, much more so than any of the kings since Solomon. The northern tribes of Israel had been abandoned, but is there a hope here that under Hezekiah they might be brought back? Under Hezekiah, the Assyrians were turned around when they tried to invade the land. And so what is this passage saying to those people in that day? Well, it's a call to keep trusting God and his king. To keep trusting that God will bring his kingdom about. God's people with their king, protected in their land, with God holding to his promises to bless them. Things might look bleak. It might look like hard, even hard to see where that is going to happen. And there are times when it looks like they will be defeated. But trust God. He will bring the victory. Of course, here's a Kai is a pretty poor fulfilment of the great promises that are made here, aren't they? The northern tribes didn't return. In fact, many of the outer towns of Judah were actually taken away. And it was all short-lived. Hezekiah's son comes on the scene and the passage about him begins the same way as all the other kings and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we need to see how this is actually fulfilled in Jesus because he is the real fulfilment of this passage as he is with all the Old Testament promises. And so seeing how Jesus fulfills and changes an Old Testament passage is the second step we need to take to cross that theological gap. That's a pretty easy one here, isn't it? Jesus is the child born in Bethlehem. So that when Herod asks his advisers where the Christ is to be born, they quote this verse from Micah 5 verse 2. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, It's Jesus who says of himself in John 10 that he is the good shepherd of the flock. And in that passage, he also talks about how he is going to gather other people who aren't part of Jerusalem that need to be gathered in as the one flock. Jesus is the one who truly acted in the strength of the Lord and who brings peace and defeats our enemy, not Assyria now, but our even greater enemy of sin and death. Jesus is the fulfilment. And so if this oracle was telling the people of Micah's day to keep trusting in God and his king, that this was the ultimate way to victory, then it says to us to keep trusting Jesus, the even greater king. If the ineffective and short-lived and imperfect reign of Hezekiah could bring rescue for God's people, how much greater is the rescue that God's perfect and eternal King Jesus brings. Friends, don't give up trusting in Jesus. The truth of the gospel is being attacked more and more every day. It is getting harder and harder to stand up and say you are a Christian without being howled down in a chorus of derision. It's, It's no longer just that people aren't interested they are increasingly hostile to anyone who says that they follow Jesus. And the future looks increasingly grim for us as Christians. The regard the church was once held held in is almost lost. The goodwill of the community is going. And things will likely get harder still. 
But what does Micah say to us? Don't give up. God's king will have the victory. Trust in him. Stand by him. Because that is what God is doing in this world. He will bring about his victory and defeat his enemies. Well, the second oracle in verses 7 to 9 catches up this same theme of the coming victory, but he does it in a slightly different way. And so uh, we read there, verse 7, the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. Well, there is still a note here, isn't there, of the triumph of God over his enemies in verse 9. But now they are being described as the remnant of Jacob, scattered among the nations. This oracle seems then to come from a later time when when things are even worse and the exile is coming. But even as a remnant, even when they are taken away from the land that God had promised them, they are still God's people. God is still at work. And so Micah says that they will be among the nations like Jew from the Lord. Jew in the arid Middle East is an essential provision of life-giving water. It's a blessing from God. And so God's blessing will come through his people, even to the people that they are scattered amongst. But there's a great contrast, isn't it? That not only will they be like this life-giving Jew, like showers on the grass, they'll also be like a lion, mauling and mangling without rescue. You see, God is also going to use his people in exile to bring judgment as well as blessing. And it'll depend upon how people respond to God as to how they receive God's people. Now, for those in Micah's day, the important message here is again, remain true to God. Even when you're cast out from your land, even when it seems like God has completely abandoned you, God will continue to use you to bring about his purposes. His purposes to bring blessing to all the nations. Something which Israel hadn't been able to do while they lived in their land. But also to bring judgment on those who reject God. As God will ultimately triumph over their enemies. Well, in Jesus we see the essence of the remnant Israelite. He is... Israel incarnate. He is the one who is faithful to God and following his ways. And yet he is handed over to the nations. He appears to be destroyed in death. And it's through his death that he brings the great blessing of forgiveness. So God lifts him up triumphant over his enemy of death so that we can look forward to his return when his final victory and the destruction of his enemies will be seen. 
And so today, we can see that we are like the remnant people of God. We are scattered among the nations. And we bring both blessing and judgment to those around about us. It's an idea that Paul takes up in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as he, he writes to the church in Corinth and he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one, we are the smell of death, but to the other, the fragrance of life. See, like the exile in Micah's day, God is using his people today. He's using us as we are among the people to bring about his purposes, to preach the gospel, the gospel that brings the blessing to those who receive it, but it also brings judgment on those who reject it. That's why people don't want Christians to have any voice. That's why they want us to keep quiet, because the gospel judges what they do. And the challenge for us then is to not give up, to not go quietly, to not just blend in with the crowd and be silent, but to keep trusting God, to stand as the people of God. We are the remnant of Jacob. We will be victorious and we are to stand in God's strength. Well, taking a very quick look then, finally, at the, uh, the last of these oracles in this chapter, when we see that it looks forward to when God will destroy all these things that Israel looked to instead of God himself. Uh, their military defences of horses and chariots, their walled cities, uh, their use of spiritual forces in, in witchcraft and spells, all their false worship of, of idols and carved images. God is going to destroy it all. God is going to purify his people of all these things as he destroys them because they are not part of God's plan. And if they are not part of God's plan, then God's people are not to look to those things. They're not to be part of their life. No, they are to be like Hezekiah who looked to God and trusted him for his rescue, not worldly security. God alone is the one who saves. And that is what we see in Jesus. He is the one who comes and clears the temple, purifies the worship of God's people. He condemns the false teaching of the leaders of his day. Ultimately, he is the one who destroys Satan and all false worship. Now, we don't completely see it in all its fullness yet, because Jesus is yet to come again. He's yet to return and finally establish his kingdom. But that is the stage of God's story that we're in, where, where God's kingdom is both now, but not yet. Where we see it having come in Jesus but we're still waiting to see it brought fully into effect when he returns. And so for us, like in Micah's day, we're to look to God for our security and confidence. And we've got so much more reason to do it because we've seen the victory of Jesus over death. We know he will protect us and keep us. You see, it's not how much money we've got in our super fund that will make our life secure. 
It's not a good education that will give you a good life. It's not having treaties with a world superpower that will keep our nation safe. It's not even having the most advanced medical research that will save us. If we really want to give our children real security, if we want real hope for our future, then the only security that matters is found in Jesus. We need to remain faithful to him. We need to trust him and him alone. We need to put aside all those other things we rely on and follow his ways and not the ways of this world. Not that we don't use those things, but they are not ultimately where our trust lies. Our trust is to be in Jesus. Well, those are the steps that we need to take to properly read the Old Testament. We need to read it in its historical and theological context. We need to see what it meant for the people in its own day. We need to cross the theological gap by seeing how it is fulfilled or changed in Jesus. And then, and only then, are we in a position where we can bring it across the historical gap to put it into practice today. So if you put this whole chapter together then, what we have is a picture of God's plan in the time of Micah. It's a plan where they will go through the hardship of exile but where God will judge them and purify them for their sin. But ultimately, God will rescue them and give them the victory under his promised king from the line of David. We've seen this great king come in the person of Jesus, and he has rescued us and given us victory over sin. But the final victory, the judgment and destruction of those who oppose God, hasn't happened yet. You see, from the distance of the prophets, those two events looked like they were one point in time. But from our viewpoint, we can actually see that they are separated by, well, at least 2,000 years so far. So as Paul wrote to Titus in our New Testament reading, we wait. We wait for Jesus to return. God's grace has appeared in Jesus and teaches us to live godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has given himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. So while we wait for his victorious return, let's proclaim God's message of the gospel, which brings blessing and judgment. Let's continue to live the upright and godly lives that Jesus has purified for us, that we might follow him as our king, trusting him in all things. May we remain faithful as he is faithful. Amen.